We don't normally introduce Michael Coughlin before he speaks, but I, I wanted to do so just because I want everyone to know a little. If you don't know Michael, then there are some things you may not know about Michael. Like, for example, you may not know that I met Michael when he was about 10 years old. He was a, a precocious young lad, headed for wonderful things we could tell back then at at uh, Spruceton Road Bible Camp in about 1990 or so, or whenever it was. And um, since then, I have loved getting to know Mike. I'm, uh, you know, Mike worked for us for about two years or so, two and a half, whatever it was, as uh, a part-time worship minister, did a great job when he did that. He also has been in full-time ministry uh, for, I don't know, how, how many years, Michael, were you in full-time ministry? Ten? Ten-ish, something like that worked with Connections Church here in town. He has an MDiv from Abilene Christian, where Jonathan and I also went. And Michael does a great job uh, and is a wonderful heart, wonderful soul. And we're just so glad that he is one of us. And I'm glad that he can talk to us this morning about the kingdom of God. Michael. So I had the good fortune of watching last week, James wrestle. So give me one moment. There's a technique, if you've got glasses. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> uh, good morning, church. It's good to be with you. Uh, Kelly, thanks. I don't remember meeting you at all in 1990, so I'm sorry I left an impression on you. <laughs> um, and let me just say this about Kelly. Uh, despite me not really remembering him, and by not really, I mean I really don't remember meeting him when I was 10. Um, he was the only minister in Canada that called me when I was in Texas, not once, but twice to say, Michael, what are you planning to do when you're done your master of divinity? Because he's got a heart for churches of Christ and the Lord's kingdom in Canada, unlike maybe any that I've ever seen. And so um, part of the reason I'm standing before you is because of Kelly, uh, which is pretty cool, which is pretty cool. So, On with the show. Jesus talked about the kingdom a lot. I mean, a lot. In fact, Jesus talked more about the kingdom than any other topic. Go ahead, pick a topic. Any theme from Jesus' teaching, and kingdom will top the list. Love, grace, ethics, God. Whether it's the phrase kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, or just kingdom. This was the primary topic of Jesus' teaching. One of the easiest ways to see this is by simply counting the number of times that Jesus said the word kingdom. In the Gospels, Jesus speaks about the kingdom 108 different times. Of those, 103 of them occur in the first three Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And since Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you haven't read them kind of all in close succession, their stories often overlap. In some ways, you feel like they're just telling the same story over and over and over again, and they are, and they aren't. But because of the overlap, I think it's interesting to point out that 76 of those 103 occurrences are unique. So there's a few that overlap, but certainly not the majority. Kingdom appears 50 times in Matthew, 14 times in Mark, and 39 times in Luke. 
Or another way to maybe kind of see this and visualize it is to take a look at a word cloud. You've probably seen these before, but in case you haven't or are not quite sure what their function is, a word cloud makes words larger the more often they're repeated in a given text. In our case, we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew, since that's where Jesus spoke about the kingdom most often. In my examples uh, for these next word clouds, you're going to see common English words like the, at, of, and in, uh, among others, have been removed because otherwise we would just see the in the middle because it happens like a bazillion more times than any other word in the English language. Um, and not and because of that, they would kind of obscure highlighting some significant themes. And so here we go. Yes, almost there. Take three. There we go. Okay. I want to make sure this is the right one. Here is a word cloud of all 22,617 words that occur in the Gospel of Matthew. You can see some pretty important words actually stand out here. Jesus, Father, Heaven, Disciples, Kingdom. And some less important words that still happen a lot, like one and tell, came, go, went, asked. Those They're kind of all over the place. Here's a word cloud now just of Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew. Again, we see some significant words emerge, heaven and father and kingdom, and some less significant ones like anyone and go and tell, come, people. Whoa, whoa, whoa there, preacher, some of you might say. Isn't heaven bigger than kingdom? Doesn't that mean Jesus talked about it more? And I would say to you, aren't you a sharp cookie? Then I would say, indeed, it is a bigger word. And for good reason. Jesus says the word heaven more often in Matthew than kingdom. He says heaven 65 times and kingdom only 49 times. But I would also invite you to consider Jesus' speech as a whole as opposed to just word by word. When we do that, we discover that those repeated words are often part of a phrase, kingdom of heaven. Heaven isn't the main topic there. In fact, it's a circumlocution, which is just a fancy word of saying a substitute for the word God, because out of respect for God, Matthew didn't want to overuse God's name. And so heaven gets substituted there. We would also see a phrase like son of man, which Jesus uses a lot. So to truly compare what Jesus spoke about and get an idea of what the topics are, we need to look at more than just individual words taken out of context. And so here is kind of an edited version. Here's an edited version of Jesus' words that take into account the fact that kingdom and heaven are together and really it's kingdom that's the topic, for example. And you can see there that Jesus talked about the kingdom. A lot. More than any other topic, Jesus talked about the kingdom. And yet, he was completely misunderstood. Which is kind of strange. How can someone talk about the kingdom of heaven so much and yet be completely misunderstood? I want to suggest just two brief observations as a starting point. First, Jesus never defines the kingdom. Jesus never defines the kingdom. He doesn't reveal any GPS coordinates. The Oxford Dictionary defines kingdom, but Jesus doesn't. Maps draw lines around countries and nations and kingdoms, but Jesus doesn't. 
Instead, we find him saying things like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and the kingdom of heaven is near, and the kingdom of heaven belongs to. It's a different kind of definition, if it's a definition at all. And second, and this is really curious to me, nobody asks Jesus to define the kingdom. Yes, sometimes people ask a specific question about the kingdom, like, who is the greatest in the kingdom? But they never ask, what is the kingdom? Nobody, ever, not once. Apparently, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God were familiar enough that the people who heard Jesus didn't feel the need to ask. Which suggests to me, anyway, that those who first heard Jesus' teaching about the kingdom, already had some ideas and some expectations about the kingdom of God. And sure enough, if we do a little bit of digging through the Old Testament and some of the other ancient uh, Jewish writings, you'll find that indeed they did have some very specific ideas and expectations and hopes about the kingdom of God. You would find that kingdom to these people meant God would show up to punish the wicked and reward the just. You would find that kingdom meant God would raise up a a descendant of King David to defeat Israel's enemies and rule over the world through that king on the throne in Jerusalem. You would find that kingdom meant God would act through a son of man to liberate the Jewish people from Gentile oppressors and to extend God's good and beneficent reign over the world through the nation of Israel. So remember that when Jesus shows up in the first century and he starts talking about the kingdom, the Jewish people he preaches to have for centuries, for hundreds of years, been ruled by non-Jews. They've been ruled by the Babylonians and the Persians and the Macedonians and the Romans for centuries. So when Jesus, a descendant of David, shows up and preaches about the kingdom and feeds thousands with a few loaves and fish, what do you think they were all hoping for? And when Jesus, the son of man, shows up and preaches about the kingdom and drives out demons and heals the sick, what else could they be thinking except it's happening? It's really happening. Of course, James and John went or uh, want the seats to Jesus right and left because the kingdom is at hand. When Jesus, the anointed one of God, the Messiah, when he shows up and preaches about the kingdom, commands the storm to be still and walks on water, what else could Peter do but draw his sword to fight at Jesus' side? We know that the Sadducees and the Pharisees misunderstood Jesus. We know that the teachers of the law and Pilate misunderstood Jesus. But so did his followers. And not just the one who walked away into the night to betray Jesus. It was the 11 who misunderstood Jesus. We misunderstand Jesus. We all bring hopes and expectations to Jesus, all of us. All of us, two a one. 
When we hear Jesus speak of the good news of the kingdom of heaven, we hear it through our own stories, through our own hopes and our own expectations. For some of us, when we hear Jesus speak about the kingdom, we hear the church. We hear that it's about being right, and it's about being part of the right church. We hear Jesus talk about the narrow road and few shall enter. But we miss that same Jesus crying out, do not even be angry with your brother or sister. And the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering ahead of you. For some of us, when we hear Jesus, we speaking about the kingdom, we hear life after death. We think that's what Jesus meant. We hear that it's about an escape to a great mansion on a golden street, and that what I do here doesn't really matter. That's what's really important, something later. We hear Jesus talk about storing up treasures in heaven and the wise virgins who kept waiting expectantly for the bridegroom to return. But we miss the same Jesus crying out, do not look lustfully on any woman or man, and the master calling his lazy servant to account for burying the treasure entrusted to him or her. The problem is Jesus never defined the kingdom as the church or as heaven. Instead, Jesus gives us a flood of parables to ponder and paradoxes to puzzle. When Jesus talked about the kingdom, he talked about all of these things that I just mentioned and more. It's about walking the narrow road and storing up treasures in heaven. It's about waiting expectantly for the bridegroom and using our God-given talents to work for justice in the world. It's about being a community who confronts sin and a community who love doing the hard work of mercy and reconciliation. And above all, the kingdom is about submitting ourselves to and participating in God's reign. Jesus' teaching about the kingdom was misunderstood not only by those who opposed him, but also by all of those who followed him. We all bring hopes and expectations, and so we need to hear all that Jesus says about the kingdom. Now, the sharp cookies among you have probably figured out by now that I've overstated my case. So good on you again for figuring that out. It wasn't everyone that misunderstood Jesus. It was almost everyone that misunderstood Jesus' teachings about the kingdom. Which leads us to this crucial question. Who gets it? Who gets it? Well, it's the ones who heard Jesus when he said this in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. It's the wealthy man who asked Jesus what he had to do to get eternal life. And when Jesus tells him the only thing that he needs to do is sell his possessions and give it away to the poor, he walks away sad. Because he saw really clearly that you can love God and you can love money, but you can't love both. And so he walked away. The wealthy man got it. It's not about having the right religion. It's not about checking the boxes. It's about having the right heart. And the wealthy man got it. 
and he walked away. It's the one who heard Jesus when he said in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 45, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. It's the Canaanite woman, the foreigner, the woman, who against all social conventions cries out to Jesus respectfully and reverently and passionately for him to heal her demon-possessed daughter. And when Jesus ignores her, she keeps crying out, annoying the disciples, and finally getting an audience with Jesus. And once she is there before Jesus in the face of denial and further insult, she has to argue him into doing what she needs. See, she got it. She got it. Whatever it is that the kingdom is, it's the most precious thing in the entire universe. Whatever the kingdom is, Jesus is at the center of it. And no citizenship, no ethnicity, no social status or social conventions could get in the way of her seeking the kingdom. See, she got it. She got it. And the more time I think we spend with Jesus teaching about the kingdom, with his preaching about the kingdom, the more we get it. The more time we spend watching the people who got it the people who respond to the kingdom, the more we get it. I mean, I hope by now, I hope by now that we're starting to see a picture that the kingdom isn't walls around a church castle. The brick and mortar that surrounds me this morning is not the kingdom. I hope that is eminently clear. It isn't lines around a special nation, and it's not way off in the distant future. The kingdom is not a way to clarify or classify who is in and who is out. That is not Jesus teaching about the kingdom. The kingdom is about submitting to and participating in the reign of God. Now we get it. But that sounds really hard. That sounds like a lot of hard work and a lot of sacrifice and a lot of giving up and not a lot of getting. So why in the world should I? Why in the world should I, Mike? Well, because Jesus did. Yes, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But Jesus also had skin in the game. Because Jesus was the one who, betrayed by one from his inner circle, abandoned and ignored by his besties, that's uh, best friends for those of you who don't catch the reference, that's when Jesus, alone in the Garden of Gethsemane, staring down his death, prayed this prayer, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. but not my will. Your will be done. Did you hear it? Did you hear the kingdom prayer? Did you hear the one who taught the kingdom and preached the kingdom, praying and living the kingdom prayer? 
We should sacrifice everything we have for the kingdom because Jesus sacrificed everything he had for the kingdom. For those of us who have been followers of Jesus for a long time, there's also this. Because Jesus is your Lord and Master. I'll keep it really short and pointy. Sorry, to the point. Submitting is what servants do to masters. Full stop. And for those of us who aren't followers of Jesus, or maybe we're skeptical followers, I've got two thoughts for you to consider. One that may not sit that well with you. And one that I hope that you'll consider a little bit more at length. So the first reason is because the kingdom of God is the one that endures. It outlasts all other kingdoms. To put it really crassly, in the end, God's kingdom wins. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But like I said, I'm not sure that this reason will sit that well with you. But I believe it's true. And so second, because the kingdom of God is the only one that can truly right the wrongs. The kingdom of God is the only one that has the ability to right the wrongs of the world. And I don't mean this in a trite, God presses the reset button on the cosmic video game kind of way. Or in a magical, God waves the wand and just makes the pain go away. I'm not talking about that. I truly believe the kingdom of God that Jesus preached and taught and lived and died for is the only one that can heal our broken world. It's the only kingdom that says repent as the first word. It's the only kingdom that I've ever encountered that says all are broken, all are sinners, all must repent. It's the only kingdom that looks at a man and looks at a woman and says repent. At a parent and at a child and says repent. At prime ministers and presidents and premiers and says repent. It is the only kingdom that looks at Whigs and Tories and Republicans and Democrats and says, repent. It is the only kingdom that looks at COVID promoters and COVID deniers and says, repent. That looks at Black Lives Matter and Proud Boys and says, repent. It is the only kingdom in the entire world that I've ever run into that makes no exceptions for every anybody ever. The first word is repent. There is no getting into the kingdom without repent, without being made low. It's the only kingdom that demands it as its entrance requirement. And without that, I don't think we have a hope. Without all starting on the same footing in the same place and recognizing that, we don't have a hope. And so I say, It's the only kingdom that says this. Live to the highest possible moral and ethical standards. The highest possible. And then in the same breath says, but you are worthy not because of your work, but because of God's work. It's this radical grace that enables radical forgiveness. That enables you to pray for your enemies, even as they're persecuting you. It's the only kingdom that says without prejudice, Do to others what you would have them do to you. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Have we ever really sat with that, followers and non-followers of Jesus? 
Jesus doesn't couch it in language. He doesn't give us excuses. He just says, do to others the way that you would have them do to you. And I think if we look in our past, I don't have to look that far. I find places where I fall short. But because I'm part of this kingdom, that doesn't exclude me because I'm only here because of God's grace to begin with. It's the only kingdom in the world that holds in perfect tension the highest moral and ethical expectations along with the widest and deepest possible grace. So if you're skeptical, whether you agree with me or not, I hope, I hope that you'll stick with Jesus' teachings about the kingdom long enough to at least give them fair consideration. Jesus tells us the kingdom is like a fishing net, that the kingdom is like a banquet. It's like a precious pearl. Jesus says the kingdom is near, and it's coming, and it's within you. Jesus says that in the kingdom, the first are last. The master is the servant, and it belongs to the little children. The kingdom of heaven, I would say, is like, it's like a dance. It's like a dance that starts small, looks curious, but's persistent and joyful and contagious. And pretty soon it's being danced in every nation, drawing people of every color into its wild gesticulations, offering up the praise of communal laughter in every language. 